Jim, to hear you describe your Koinonia group sounds more like a reality show than something of a spiritual nature. <clears throat> Duck mating, really? Amazing. <laughs> oh, well. <clears throat> Several weeks ago, in fact, I looked at the calendar just a few minutes ago to see exactly how many days it was several weeks ago, almost to the day. <clears throat> Three weeks ago, I was standing on the Mount of Olives and looking at Jerusalem from the very vantage that Jesus was when he, uh, on the day of his triumphal entry, which is such a misnomer. I've tried to, I would love to maybe trace the history of uh, who named that day a triumphal en- entry. What in the world makes it triumphal? Anyway, but Jesus was walking or riding down the, the path there. And do you know what the purpose of the Palm Sunday was? The purpose of that riding on the donkey and fulfilling that scripture? And I mean, why did that happen? It wasn't just you know, this patchwork quilt of events that we've put together and now we've got the Gospels. But there is a logical flow. Whenever, whenever you read something in the, in the Scriptures, it wasn't just, you know, Jesus willy-nilly decided to heal somebody or decided to share this sermon. There was a purpose to it all. And the purpose of the, the Palm Sunday was you could sort of liken it to what we do every four years at our national conventions. At the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention, it's just a formal way of announcing who the candidate is. I mean, prior to that, we all know who the candidates are. There's no, you know, they've made public appearances, they've made speeches, it's everything built up to that moment, but then at the convention is when they say, yes, I accept the nomination of, you know, President of the United States, and everyone goes wild. But we all knew that prior to that. Everybody knew that Jesus was the Messiah, or at least the disciples did, prior to him presenting himself as he rode down the, the slope of the Mount of Olives. But when he did that, that was his official announcement, I am the Messiah. That was the moment where he made that announcement. And we know that, as Chuck shared from the scriptures, also from Daniel chapter 9, says that from the time of the rebuilding of the city until the Messiah, the Prince, comes. It will be, and he gave a certain number of years, which actually lined right up with the day that Jesus rode in on the back of the donkey. And so the purpose of that was to basically say, I am the Messiah, which makes sense now why Jesus was weeping. And it wasn't anything triumphal. It was a day of sadness for Jesus because he knew, here I am presenting myself as the Messiah, and yet I know that in just a matter of a few days, I'm going to be rejected by the nation. Incidentally, on that very same hill at the bottom of the Mount of Olives, there is a garden called Gethsemane in which Jesus' disciples would flee several days later. So here you have them proclaiming him to be the Messiah on Palm Sunday and then the evening or the night of Monday, Thursday, um, they all flee. So it's, it's a sad time for Jesus up to that, up until Sunday morning, of course, when it's fantastic for all of us. I heard about a father who walked into a room to see his young son with his arm stuck in a vase. 
little boy, arms stuck in the vases, like all the way up, you know, to his shoulder. And uh, the, it was a little thin vase, and he couldn't get his arm out. And the father said, Why, how in the world did that happen? He says, well, you know, I dropped my penny in there, and I reached in to grab my penny, and <laughs> he got his arm stuck. And so they tried and tried to pull it off, and it was hurting the kid. He's going, ow, ow, ow. So finally there was nothing to do, but the father decided that he was going to have to break the vase. So he goes out and gets a small ball-peen hammer to, uh, you know, to pop that vase. And the child sees the father coming with the hammer, and it's just this terror of what's about to happen. And the child says, no, 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 wait, Daddy, wait. I'll just let go of the penny. (laughs) Oh, boy. We laugh at the naivete of a child, of the mind of a child, and yet the reality is we so often will do the same thing. We will cling to something small, something trivial, something worth a penny, and get to the breaking point, literally, before we will let go of that small thing. We are willing to break something valuable because we refuse to release something trivial. We cling to our pennies and break our vases. So, simple question for you as we get back into the story of Joseph today. Um, You got your hand stuck in a vase? Well, I'm going to encourage you to let that go as we make our way through this text today in Genesis chapter 44. So turn to Genesis chapter 44, and we continue this wonderful story that we left off at a crucial moment last time around. In fact, Harry came up to me last time and says, I can't believe you stopped where you stopped. I said, well, we, uh, we, have to keep, we have to keep going. Uh, we can't make this a, a three-hour saga. But uh, today we will resolve that tension for you, Harry, but we'll also create some more tension that uh, the future must continue to resolve. Genesis 44 If you've been with us, you probably remember the story, but let's just summarize. It's helpful to kind of get us back into it. Joseph, in Genesis, is the second to youngest of 12 sons of Jacob. In fact, he was the favorite son of Jacob, and the other brothers resented that. And what they really resented is not just that he was the favorite son, but he had dreams, and he shared those dreams with his brothers, saying, Um, you're going to bow down to me. Well, they just thought that ain't going to happen. And so they sold him into slavery to Egypt with the statement, now let's see what happens to his dreams. Joseph is taken as a slave in Egypt, ends up being a servant at the bodyguard, the head of the bodyguard of Pharaoh in a house of a man called Potiphar. Potiphar's wife, uh, tries to seduce him, falsely accuses him. Joseph ends up in prison. And everywhere Joseph goes, it is undeserved, and yet God causes him to rise. And while Joseph is in prison, he correctly interprets the dream of a couple of fellow prisoners. And this encourages Joseph that God has not forgotten him. He can still interpret dreams. And that his own dreams will come true one day turns out that these two prisoners were servants of Pharaoh. One died, so he's out of the picture, but one goes back into service of Pharaoh, and a couple of years later, Pharaoh has a dream. This servant remembers that this Hebrew guy in prison can interpret the dreams. They get Pharaoh, 
they get Joseph and bring him to Pharaoh, and Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dreams. He says there's, there's a famine coming. There's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And Pharaoh says, Joseph, you're now in charge to get ready for the famine. Use these years of plenty to store up grain so that during the time of famine we'll have enough. And so that's what Joseph does. Joseph actually gets married. They have a couple of kids. Joseph names his children Ephraim and Manasseh. He doesn't give them Egyptian names. He gives them Hebrew names, showing that he has not lost his belief and his faith in his God, in his Hebrew God. In fact, his, the names of his kids actually reflect his faith in God. So Joseph is still right there with the Lord. Interesting, though. Joseph gets all this power, and he doesn't send a runner back to Israel or back to Canaan to let Daddy know, by the way, Dad, everything's fine. I'm just running Egypt. (laughs) He doesn't do that. He realizes this whole prophecy of his brothers and his family coming and bowing down to him is not something that he looks forward to with any kind of an ego, but this is a prophecy that's going to come about in God's time. He doesn't need to get involved in Russia, which is amazing, because if we had that kind of power, we longed for that kind of resolution to be returned to our Father, we would have done that. Joseph, somehow God gave him the wisdom to realize it's not time, not time yet. But when the famine hits, now everybody's hungry, and they hear Egypt has grain. So everyone, including Joseph's brothers, go down to Egypt to buy grain. Joseph recognizes his brothers. They don't recognize him. He's dressed up in his Egyptian costume. He's speaking Egyptian. They have no idea that this is the brother that they sold into slavery all these years earlier. But Joseph wonders, are these guys the same rascals that sold me into slavery all those years ago? So he begins a series of tests not in any way vindictive, but in every way to see if they are who they have been in the past, or if not, if they'd be willing to change and be the godly men that they should be. And so basically, Joseph says, look, uh, I'll give you a little grain, but don't come back again for more grain unless you bring Benjamin, because Benjamin wasn't with them, the youngest son, the son who was now the favorite son of Jacob, who had replaced Joseph as the favorite son. So they go back, time passes, finally they have to go back, all of them together, including Benjamin. Jacob has to let go of his, of his prized son, and he says, if I am bereaved of my sons, then I am bereaved. Well, this is where we find, uh, find ourselves now in Genesis 44. They've come back, and Joseph has wined and dined them in his own house, and now he's about to set them up to drop the hammer. Genesis 44, verse 1. Then he commanded his house steward, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, and his money for the grain. And they did as Joseph told him. As soon as it was light, the men were sent away, they with their donkeys. So to prepare for the brother's departure, Joseph tells his house steward, put the money back in the sacks, but he says, place my cup, this silver chalice, which was something that uh, rulers in Egypt would use to divine the future. 
Now, Joseph didn't do this, but this is part of his costume. And this is a pricey piece of, you know, what do you call that? Cup. Uh, silverware. Uh, what do you call cups? Hollowware? Am I the only one that's never heard that before? I guess so. Well, all, all the women are looking like this. All the men are like, I don't know, hollowware. It's a cup. So anyway, puts the chalice or the hollowware. I got to use that somewhere in, a, in an article, hollowware. Anyway, seriously, is that what it's called? So anything that's not silverware is hollowware. All right, well, we, we digress. So they put Joseph's prized piece of hollowware in the sack of Benjamin. It's a setup. It's clearly a setup. And first light, they head out. They're back. They're on their way back home. They had food for the famine. They had Simeon back. They had Benjamin safe. Mission accomplished. Life was good. Not so fast. Look at verse 4. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, Up, follow the men. And when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sack we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. So he said, Now let it be according to your words. He whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be innocent." Then they hurried. Each man lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack. He searched, beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Then they tore their clothes, and when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. So the steward's accusation, obviously, had, makes no sense. I mean, they had proven their honesty. They brought back the money that wasn't theirs to, to take. And, and their point is, in fact, they were so confident of their innocence, they said, look, whoever you find this cup in, he gets to die. What a statement. They found it in Benjamin's sack. And the steward says, look, he didn't have to die, but Benjamin gets to be my slave for life, and the rest of you all get to go free. Benjamin. That's right. Benjamin gets to be the slave the favorite son, the only son of Rachel and, and Jacob that's left, the brother of the brother they had betrayed, gets to be a slave. Aha, you, do you hear any kind of deja vu happening here? Now the brothers have the opportunity to get rid of the favorite son, and he gets to be a slave in Egypt. Where have we heard that before? This is the brother Judah vowed to watch over or else bear the blame forever. Benjamin. Imagine what their ride back into the city was like. Just silence. Thinking of the implications as the wave of emotion would have washed over them. They're thinking, what in the world are we going to do? Well, they come back to Joseph's house. 
Verse 14, finding him hot as a hornet. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, What is this deed that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? So Judah said, What can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we justify ourselves? God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Interesting statement Joseph makes. Again, when Joseph says, you know, don't you know that such a man as I can practice divination, he wasn't saying that he practiced divination like the, uh, the, the Egyptians did, but it's interesting that Joseph could tell the future. Isn't that kind of an interesting twist? Such a man as I can tell the future, by the way. Remember those dreams. And Joseph didn't use the cup for divination. He used it as part of his disguise. And it worked because it awakened their conscience even more. Remember when they had left before and the money was in their sack, they said, what is this that God has done to us? And now, once again, they ask that question. And they say, God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Now, what iniquity is he talking about? He's talking about iniquity that this you know, Egyptian would have no idea. But they're saying, look, this, we're, we didn't do this, but God has made sure that the guilty don't walk away. We're guilty. And notice he says, we are, we'll be all your slaves. We sold our, the implication, we sold our brother as a slave. We are guilty. We all deserve to be your slaves. God had given Joseph the ability to see the future, and the brothers, it says, were fell down before him. Interesting. That's another fulfillment of, the, of a dream, isn't it? They all fell down before him. Judah, of course, probably just sort of raises his hand from where he is on the ground and says that God has found out the iniquity of the servants. Well, Joseph refuses this offer. They're not, they don't need to all be slaves. Uh, we'll just pick one of them, the, the, the special one. Verse 17, but he said, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. Now look at this last line. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. <laughs> That's like stab, twist. Stab and twist. This is your opportunity, guys. Remember 22 years ago when you had this opportunity? What did you do? You were so sick of the favorite son, you sold him into slavery, and you went back up to your father in peace and made up this story. And, of course, it broke the father's heart. Joseph is saying, basically, you got the opportunity to do that again now. Have they changed or are they still the same rascals that they were 22 years ago? Only Benjamin needs to be a slave. Joseph, in making this statement, pulls the linchpin out. Go up in peace. Joseph knew that those words were going to slice a nerve one way or the other. Either they would take him on his offer and say, so long, Benjamin. Been nice knowing you. Or... Are they going to respond to the years of prompting that God had had on their conscience? What would they choose? On their faces before Joseph, the weight of his words 
Judah rises in verse 18. And his words in these verses, some have described these as the most eloquent and tender appeal ever recorded in all of literature. Quite a statement. Whether it's all of literature or not, it is certainly the climax of our story. Look at verse 18, these wonderful, wonderful appeal from Judah. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears, and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said of your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. Thus it came when we went up to your servant, my father. We told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, Go back, buy us a little food. But we said, We cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your father, your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow." Therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain Instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, for fear that I shall see the evil that would overtake my father? This is Judah's finest moment. This is not the same man. This is not the same Judah we have seen throughout the story. Remember the chapter that was all completely devoted to Judah back in chapter 38, where we were all going, why is this here in the the Joseph story? What do we see of Judah in that chapter? We saw in that chapter, which was right after the chapter, where Judah said, let's sell our brother to the Ishmaelites and pocket some money. That was the Judah back then. Then the next chapter, chapter 38, Judah fails to do what he should have done, and giving his sons to Tamar, Tamar has to trick Judah into producing an heir because Judah wouldn't do what was right. Judah was all about Judah. Judah was all about what's in it for him and for his lineage and protecting himself. This is not the same man that we saw all those years ago. Judah had changed. This is Judah's finest hour. And the other brothers... Obviously, don't say a word, but Judah speaking for them represents that he has changed. And the idea here, go up in peace to his father, he knew he never could do that. So Judah says, take me instead, let Benjamin go free. 
This brings us to our very first principle for this text, which is one, both of these principles can apply to pulling your hand out of that vase. And here's the first one. Peace only comes through personal sacrifice. Think about that. Peace only comes through personal sacrifice. Sounds like a contradiction, but it's not. Without personal sacrifice, there is no peace. And here's the irony. There's no personal satisfaction in life. We don't get satisfaction from getting our way. We get satisfaction from doing what is right. And that requires sacrifice. The type of sacrifice has nothing to do with surrendering your integrity or compromising morality. Godly sacrifice recognizes the difference between pennies and vases. And when it comes to relationships, there is no peace and there is no reconciliation without sacrifice. Let's say, for example, you've got a friend. You and a friend years ago had a falling out. And if you're honest, what keeps you clinging to the penny in the vase is nothing but pride. And so you don't contact that friend. You don't make any connection. Holidays, birthdays, nothing. You just let time do its thing and they just drift off. Or let's say your marriage is struggling because your expectations of aren't being met in your marriage. That may require sacrifice of expectations. In fact, it does. There's no marriage that survives without sacrifice. Or let's say you've got a passion for something like music or uh, a hobby or whatever, but you also need to pay the bills. <laughs> you also need to provide for your family. You're going to sacrifice your dream until God opens the door and do what is right? You see, some of our problems require a willingness to surrender our personal preferences as valuable as they are. Surrendering them doesn't mean they're not important. They are important, but they're just not as important as other things. That penny has value, not as much value as the vase. You let go of the penny to save the vase. Think about our Lord Jesus. This was true of Jesus. Now, put this in the context of Jesus and tell me if now all of a sudden it doesn't make sense. Peace only comes through personal sacrifice. Okay, now we get it, don't we? We could not have peace without the personal sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Listen to these verses. This is John fifteen thirteen. Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this, than one lay down his life for his friends. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 5, very first verse, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It took sacrifice for us to have peace with God. And if you think about it in the Old Testament, through the book of Leviticus, we saw all the sacrifices that were done there. It took sacrifice to have peace with God. It took a literal sacrifice. For us, it takes a literal sacrifice as well. We see in the book of Romans again that we are called to be living sacrifices. There is no peace with God or with other people without sacrifice. So if you've got your hand stuck in a vase like that, let go. This is what Judah did. Judah realized that peace is only going to happen through sacrifice. So instead of asking for mercy, for Benjamin, 
Judah pleads to take his place. And here is Judah is a beautiful metaphor, you might even say type, of the ultimate descendant of Judah, Jesus Christ, who laid down his life for all of us Benjamins, all of us who would have been taken in the bondage of sin and slavery. Judah begged to take the place of Benjamin, the complete opposite actions that Joseph, that Judah did with Joseph. Remember, with Joseph, it was like, get rid of him. But with Benjamin, it's like, I'll take his place. Oh, this is a changed man. Judah appealed to Joseph on the basis of the qualities that he and his brothers had betrayed years ago. Sacrifice, love, selflessness, grace. Clearly, they had changed. And when Joseph saw that they had changed, test over, done, now he can do what we've all longed for him to do, and that is reveal himself to his brothers. Now, I was sort of tempted right here to tease Harry and say, we'll talk about that next week. <laughs> but we won't. Let's, let's look at next week. We won't meet anyway, so... Look at chapter 45. Look at chapter 45. This is beautiful. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood beside him, and he cried, Have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard of it. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Now, dismayed at his presence. Some suggest that that means they realize this is Joseph. Uh Uh-oh, he's going to kill us. I think it was more of the idea of this guy is about to go nuts. Because he's so far up up until the moment he says, I am Joseph, which would have been really weird because he hasn't spoken Hebrew up to this point. It's all been through interpreters. And so when he said, have everyone go out from me, again, this is Egyptian. And he screams it. He's clearly having, having an episode here. And the brothers still, on their faces, hear this, have everyone go out for me. And so something in Egyptian, all they know is he yelled something in Egyptian. Everyone's left the room, and now there's nobody but them and this crazy guy. And the first thing the crazy guy says in perfect Hebrew dialect is, Ani Yosef. I am Joseph. The first time they've ever heard any Hebrew from this guy is in the perfect dialect of their own home. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Why would he ask that? He asked that because Judah had just said, if Benjamin leaves, it's going to kill our dad. And Joseph's realizing, what have I done? Is my father still alive? And, well, he goes on. Verse, uh, where is it? Verse 4. And Joseph said to his brothers, Please come closer to me. And they came closer. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. You know, it's a good thing they were already laying flat. (laughs) Can you imagine what? must have been going on in their emotions. Joseph identifies himself again, but now I am your brother, Joseph. It's not just I am Joseph, but I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And notice, he acknowledges their sin. He says it, you sold me into Egypt. He didn't brush past it, he didn't discount it, but then he quickly also comforts them. Verse 5, Now, do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God, and he has made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt." Here we see the pattern of Joseph's life. We've seen it multiple times as we've gone through the story of Joseph, but here Joseph really brings it out of the closet and holds it right in our face. God. God is the one who did this. God is the one that did And he comforts them by saying, it's not you. I mean, it was you, but ultimately it wasn't you. It was God that did this. He points to God every time. Joseph speaks, he points to God. Remember, when it was Potiphar's wife, he pointed to God. He spoke of God. When it was the cupbearer and the baker, when they spoke to dreams, Joseph talked about God. When Pharaoh needed to interpret, needed an interpreter, Joseph said, God will give Pharaoh a, a favorable answer. And now, and probably the most telling of all of Joseph's testimonies about God, in these verses we read a total of four times as he's talking with his brothers. He gives God the credit for what happened. And he's going to do it again here in the verses that follow. Joseph had learned what the text shows us as our next principle. And it's this. Look at every event in life through the filter of God's sovereignty. Look at every event in life through the filter of God's sovereignty. This is the one perspective that changes everything. We've got to quit looking at ourselves as victims of life. We're not victims. God's in charge. You are not a victim, ultimately, in your life. Regardless of the victimization that you may have experienced, even the abuse that you may have experienced, God is in charge. We can, many of us can look back at terrible family history heartbreaking family history. Joseph could. Joseph could. And Joseph said, you did it, but ultimately God allowed it for a greater good. Not for evil, but to do something good. Notice he says, verse 7, God, verse uh, 5, God sent me before you to preserve life. Verse 7, God sent me before you to preserve a remnant. Verse 8, God has done it. God has made me father of all. The purpose of it was not that Joseph simply be a slave in Egypt. The purpose was to get Joseph to Egypt so that God could work through Joseph not only to save the family but ultimately to save the world. Joseph's story shows us that God's providence opens doors on every level. 
God works through everything in our lives, including tragedy, including that one thing that you think is the exception. If you think about your past, there's probably a couple things, maybe one thing especially that you think, there ain't no redemption for this. There ain't nothing that God's going to do to flip this on its head and bring good. Joseph could have had that mindset as well. And I don't mean to discount your emotions, but let's all be honest. That's all it is, is emotion. It's not fact. Fact we get from Scripture. Emotions come from the heart, but we've got to filter our emotions through the Word of God and not vice versa. We don't interpret the Word of God through our emotions. We interpret our emotions through the Word of God. And we feel horrible about stuff that's happened to us in our past. Joseph did. We've seen that throughout the story of Joseph. But what we also see throughout the story of Joseph is his dogged determination to cling to God, even when everything else was saying abandon him. Abandon him. Go ahead. I mean, your brothers sold you into slavery. Go ahead. Prosper in this pagan land. Clearly your God has abandoned you. And the, the, the story goes on. Joseph's story shows us that God's providence opens doors on every level, and it shows us that God is working in your life for more than just your life. Joseph said that. Joseph didn't say, God brought me down here to prosper me. He said, God brought me down here to deliver you. And if we look at the bigger story of it all, it wasn't just that God brought them down there to deliver them, but Judah plays such a, a big role in this story because ultimately God is preserving the line of the 12 tribes, but Judah, because it's through Judah we're going to see when we get to chapter 49, through who come the kings, and ultimately who through comes the Messiah. And ultimately the Messiah Jesus comes, dies on the cross for our sins, rises again on Easter Sunday, ascends, promises to come back to rule the world for a thousand years and to lead us into eternity. Yeah, that's what Joseph's story helped to produce. And though our stories aren't written in the Bible, that is true of us as well. We serve a sovereign God that things that are happening in our lives, not just happening for our lives, they're happening for the lives of generations after us, that people may come to Christ, walk with Christ, and ultimately reign with Christ forever and ever. I like the words of the old Puritan John Flavel. He writes, Some providences, like Hebrew letters, must be read backwards. Isn't that neat? We understand what God has written as we look back. We look forward and it's just a mess. But we look back and we say, okay, I see what God was doing. Joseph was able to do that. When Joseph was strapped to the back of a camel when he was headed down to Egypt for the very first time, do you think he saw all this? No way. But over time, God gave Joseph the insight to be able to say, you know what? God is sovereign. God is ruling over all these events. And now Joseph brings his brothers up to speed as well. A lot of times as we follow God's will, we're not going to see a way out of our situation. In fact, humanly speaking, there's probably no way out. Those are fearful moments. I don't know. You've probably been there. I've definitely been there. 
in moments where you where it just looks like lord you just dropped the ball here i don't know another way to say it and i sort of feel permission to say it because the psalms say that over and over god how long will you abandon me forever how long are you not going to show up forever the psalms give vent to the emotions of the poets thankfully and they give us permission as it were to say god this is how i'm feeling but also, most of those psalms also say, all right, here's how I'm feeling. Now I'm going to filter that through Scripture. Lord, I'm clinging to you. And that's what we've got to do. You may be in a situation now or in the days to come where you feel like, Lord, you've dropped the ball. You have failed me. And the reality is he's simply failed our expectations. He hasn't failed you. It's going to take looking back, and you're going to go, Lord, what incredible brilliance that you would so orchestrate my life like this, that you would so love me enough to let me hurt so that you would bring me to a place that I never could have gotten if you hadn't let me hurt. It's not love to just cushion our Benjamins. God and his sovereignty wrenches Benjamins from our hands, as it were, and allows them to go off and experience the terror. Imagine how Benjamin felt. Benjamin is hearing all this. This is his first time to ever leave home. What a trip. (laughs) Poor Benjamin. He leaves home and all of a sudden he's facing slavery in Egypt. Yeah. The kind of you have failed me mindset is the same kind of thinking that urged Joseph's great-grandmother Sarah to flat out laugh at God's fantastic promise that she would have a child. Ha! You've got to be kidding. And the Lord's response to Sarah back in Genesis 18 was this, Is anything too difficult for the Lord? Hmm. Even death cannot thwart God's good plans for us. If you think about it, impossible situations are what we need for God to do a miracle. It's not a miracle if the situation is possible. I mean, if we can figure it out, we don't need the Lord. If we can feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish, we don't need the Lord. But God puts us in those situations where we are in in a context of lack so that we will trust him and so that he can show himself to be the God who can who does what only God can do. Well, Joseph trusted him and God custom built Joseph's refining fire through all these years, betrayals, kidnapping, homesickness, slavery, temptation, false accusation, chains, solitude, and years and years and years of waiting. But Joseph saw God's hand in the whole deal. Listen to what the Lord Jesus said in Mark chapter 10. Interesting, same chapter we just looked at in the previous service. With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. That's what Jesus said. With people, it's impossible. In your situation, it's impossible by yourself. But all things are possible with God. God never asked us to figure out the solution. He just asked us to trust him. Joseph waited 22 years for chapter 45. 22 years for chapter 45. There's nothing like a period of futility to to make the resolution and reconciliation so sweet. If you've ever had a reconciliation with somebody after a prolonged period of time, 
you know how sweet that can be. Unfortunately, it's so rare. We usually just go our own way, and that's the end of that. Well, look at, uh, look at chapter, well, verse 9. Verse 9. So he says, God's made me father to Pharaoh and lord of all Egypt. Verse 9, hurry, go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. See, there again, God gets the credit. Come down to me, do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, and your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt, and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. <laughs> what a great line. Don't you, wouldn't you have loved to have heard that conversation? The Holy Spirit just draws a veil across it and just lets them have that private time. But his brothers talked with him. Oh, man, I would have loved to have heard that. What would they have talked about? We can only imagine. Some of the things you know they talked about, uh, like, you know, children. I've got children. How many children do you have now? And all this kind of stuff. And Joseph would have introduced them to his kids, Ephraim and Manasseh, and his wife of nine years at this point. And I like to think also, as Joseph wept on each of these brothers' neck, that they would have apologized. You know they did. That they would have confessed, that they would have wept and realized the pain that they caused. And then there's the obvious question, Joseph, uh, how'd you get to be ruler of all Egypt? (laughs) This is a question that, you know, they were itching to find out. Well, and as Joseph would have explained that painful road, you know that that would have hurt them as well as they realized they had caused that. All those false accusations, the, the, the imprisonment, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We can only imagine what they talked about. But wonderful reconciliation as they embraced and wept and caught up. So, you got your hand in a vase? Let go of that penny. It ain't worth that penny. It's not worth it. Something valuable is about to be shattered if you don't let go of your penny. Judah shows us peace only comes through personal sacrifice. That was our first lesson, and Judah showed it to us. Peace only comes through personal sacrifice. Yeah, but if I sacrifice myself, my dreams, my preferences, my rights, my, 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 what's going to happen? Joseph shows us, our second principle, look at every event in, the, in life through the filter of God's sovereignty. We're not victims like we think we are. God is working in our lives. We're not in a dead-end cul-de-sac. God is working in our lives. That is the one perspective that changes everything for you. God is over your life. You are not out of the hand of God, and no, no event in your life is out of the hand of God. We don't live lives just seeing, but we live lives of faith 
and a sovereign God, just like Joseph did. Well, the story only continues to get better, and we'll look at it next time, or the next time we're here. Let's pray. Our Father, we only have peace with you because of the sacrifice of our Lord Jesus. We only have our sins forgiven because Jesus sacrificed himself to die in our place on the cross. We only have peace and hope for the future because we have humbled ourselves and believed in Jesus that he died for us. And he has become our substitute. Just as Judah offered to be a substitute for Benjamin, so Jesus did the real thing, offered himself on our behalf and died the death that was ours. And he rose again, showing that our sins indeed had been paid for and that our hope is a hope that is real. It is a hope and a resurrection, our resurrection one day. And this is what we cling to also, Father, as we look at our painful past and even maybe painful present and needing to cling to your sovereignty. Joseph showed us it can be done. We've experienced that it can be done. Give us the strength to do it, to cling to you even in a maze of confusion when the world offers a thousand exits to the right way Help us to keep our eyes looking ahead, to fix our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him despised the cross, despised the shame, carried his cross all the way to the end. This is what you're calling us to do, and we can only do it as we filter these emotions through the word of God. Thank you for it, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you, Wayne. It does just continue to get better and better. <laughs> I hope you all have a blessed Easter. You're going to, as you walk out of the room, we should have the uh, directories for you. And until we see you again, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.